Kia ora. Welcome to Beyond the Green Road with Anne Enright. I'm Maureen Rout. And before we get into this conversation, this grilling, um, <laughs> I need to thank the major sponsors of the Word Christchurch Autumn Season, which, as you know, is held in association with the Auckland Writers Festival. The people we need to thank are Creative New Zealand, Christchurch City Council, Te Runanga o Naitahu, and the Rata Foundation. And of course, we want to acknowledge seeing this as our last event in this sparkling season, the very generous patrons and supporters and the audiences that have come to hear all our wonderful writers. And now, what a privilege it is to have at our festival Anne Enright, Booker Prize winner, first laureate of Irish fiction, and a writer of novels, short stories, and non-fiction. A writer who's been described as brilliant, devastating, and radical, witty, original, and inventive. One whose critics and reviewers are almost unanimous in their praise and their respect. Now, to prepare for an event like this, it's essential to read the books, follow up as many interviews, reviews and articles you can track down and not be diverted into all the other things that pop up at the same time. And of course, immerse yourself as much as you can in the writer's world. It is, as you can imagine, a wonderfully pleasurable thing to do. And when it's a writer of the caliber of Anne Wright, it's a task that reminds you anew of what great writing does so well. Hers is writing that lets you enter entirely into the works. And although I'm not a gay man in 1980s New York, the sister of an anorexic, a mother who takes to her bed, or an elderly Vietnamese immigre in Paris, the writing gives you that wonderful aha moment, a moment of recognition. It makes you feel not only understood, but also a great sense of gratitude that someone can capture so deftly the warp and weft of human relationships. And that is Anne Enright's gift to us. Anne and I are going to talk first. She's going to read from her work. And I'll leave a good stretch of time at the end for your questions. And don't forget, there are books out there in the lobby at the UBS store. And Anne will be there afterwards to sign those books and talk with you. So first, let's get the Irish bit out of the way. Yes. Anne. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Irishness. You are the first laureate of, of Irish fiction. I am. Yeah. Tell me about how that happened and what does it... Well, it's a new role which mm. the Arts Council conjured up um, recently. And it sort of, I suppose, formalises what Irish writers do anyway, which is go around the world and give out about Ireland and complain and, <laughs> and are dissenting in some way. Um, but, yeah, it's a three-year term. I teach in... Uh, I taught in New York and in Dublin and deliver an annual lecture. And sort of generally go about in the largest sense of myself. <laughs> and exist. Um, 
and it has, you know, there the, the, an amount of informal work as well is involved, and it's it's great because the Irish tradition is such an amazingly changing tradition. I'm very invested in the idea of change, particularly when it comes to foregrounding uh, work by women. And it's not really all that difficult because there's such an incredible um, new wave of writing that has happened since the economic collapse in 2008. Around 2011, 12, these books started coming out and it's like, where did they come from? They were just... Uh, new voices, uh, a lot of people willing to say whatever comes into their pretty little heads, and, um, and, and a kind of explosion of an idea of Irishness that I've waited for all my life. So it's great. It's been a pleasure. Do you want to expand a little bit on that Irishness that you've been waiting for? Um, when, yeah, Irishness. I, I, I am Irish. <laughs> <laughs> it is not something I can either change or regret, or that I regret. Um, uh, I'm a female writer, um, and I'm not about to change that. I suppose you could move to America and become American. Um, but it's like the Catholic Church. You, 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 can't, you, know, you can't get out of it. <laughs> no matter what you say, it somehow comes out in a Catholic sort of way. But... Um, and the same with the Irish thing, that you have this great gift of uh, a relationship with the English language uh, that is very nurturing and can be quite subversive. Um, and uh, so, they're, 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 anyway, it's great. I have no complaints. <laughs> um, however, when I was thinking about writing The Green Road or when I was starting a book and it became more and more apparent that it was set in the west of Ireland, I had a gathering sense of dread. I said, I can't do this. I can't have cliffs and sea and stone walls and sheep and cows. I can't do this. Partly because I felt that landscape didn't belong to me in some very uh, signal sort of way. And mostly because that landscape had been the Irish, the iconic national landscape, which was iconically rural, poor, and you might say more uh, more dealt with in a male tradition than a female tradition. Then I realized my father had grown up 30 miles down the road in a small cottage on a cliff. Now, why the hell couldn't I write about it? You know, so that this place, which was the place of Yeats and Singh and Lady Gregory, so not entirely male, but this place that had become a kind of idea of peasantry and... Um, I don't know what, what, what you'd call it, but whatever fed into the respectability that choked my childhood, to put it that way, <laughs> um, that seemed to have its origin and be incontrovertible somehow there in the west of Ireland because of emigration, because of post-colonial wounds, you know. So anyway, I, I realised, no, I, I'm at one generation away from this place. I went there when I was a child all the time. My uncle still was farming cows down the road. Why can't I write about people farming cows? My uncle's called Paddy. <laughs> can't have a Paddy in a book. <laughs> but there he is. There he was. He's gone now. But there was my uncle Paddy. So I thought, why not? I'll, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll do that. No, you have every right to. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that 
that you had to go through that process. Of, it really is in yeah. my 50s to, to, mm. to say, to, to feel so averse to something that was so close. Mm. Uh, but you know, when you're growing up in Ireland, and you're, I, I grew up reading Frank O'Connor and um, many great Irish writers, but uh, Joyce as well. But there was a kind of claustrophobia in in that work for me. So when I hit the Americans, and when I, it was like, okay, okay, Sylvia Plath, wow, you know, um, and it was very far from County Clare. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a feeling not Probably only of... people putting their... Yeah, possibility, their heads urgency. Gas there. Yeah, but there was a thing that they were doing, these, these American writers that mm. I was reading when I was 12, 13, 14, at Plath, among others, they were using I. And I was a sort of illegal word in mm. Ireland when I grew up. It's not about you, I think is a modern phrase, but it would sum up how we were reared, that I was a, was a kind of, who are you? It was a, a excessive entitlement in I. Mm. And then you got these swaggering sort of first-person narrators in American fiction who clearly didn't care less. And the confidence was amazing. You so, made a comment in, a, in, a, um, in one of the many interviews I came across on the web about the anxiety of the female voice in Ireland. Is that something you're alluding to here? The anxiety about or the anxiety of? Well, now yeah. I've got of, of but it yeah. might have been about. Well, there's a long, and uh, uh, this, is, this is, you know, in 1991, there was a field day anthology of Irish writing, which was uh, done by a group of northern poets, Seamus Heaney among them, but he wasn't an editor of this collection. They wanted to put together a canonical series of volumes of, of Irish writings gathered over the centuries. And they didn't put any women in there. Uh, this is 1991. Um, and when one of the editors was asked why there were no women in there, he said, I forgot. <laughs> He said it like somebody was asking him for his homework, you know? <laughs> I forgot the cheek of it. Um, so there was a great brouhaha, and a fourth volume was brought out of, of, of women's writing. But that was when I was starting out, and I was at the kind of f fantasy stage of ambition, like I'm going to do whatever. And I thought, this is completely irrelevant to me, these guys, this, this mm. body of work. Mm called Everything Everyone Ever Wrote in Ireland Ever, right? <laughs> and I'm never going to be in there, and neither are any women going to be in there. <laughs> and whatever I say, I mean, it, it was a slow burn, this. I mean, it, I'm angry now, but at the time, I was completely insouciant. <laughs> oh, lovely word. I, well, I just said, this is an international joke. Everyone's laughing at you. And um, I, it's of no interest to me whatsoever. And I thought, well, they're just all going to die, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and then it'll all change. But change is much more complex and slower in any given society than you hope for in your early 20s. Um, and so that 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 has that still plays out, unfortunately. Just so the idea that you can speak and speak and speak, but you you will not be heard. Wow, 
wow. Mm. And one thing I realised at that moment was that I could write anything I liked. Because you weren't going to get in that anthology anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It would not matter. Mm. It would not be deemed relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you said, well, why why can't they hear of course, in, in the old days, it was always about quality. It was because the, the women were no good. But some of the men were so terrible. <laughs> and you say, well, why are you more interested in mediocre men than mediocre women? Let's have more mediocre women out there. Um, for example, so that, that, that's, that's a strong kind of... That's a, that's a big problem, one way or the other. Um, I, have, I see this book, Making Babies, that I wrote, but I, I kind of made an aphorism that your problem is your solution, you know? Mm. The solution is in the problem. If the problem is you can't be heard in Ireland, you just go make loads of noise somewhere else or write whatever you like, you know? Which is a, my answer when I had children and thought I'd never write again. Well, then you write about the children. So the problem is the solution. <laughs> you can't write because your babies are no. right about the babies. Well, yeah. this this is a book that you I think you give to mothers at about three to six months after they've had the baby. It's a very good contraceptive, that book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd never and give it to a woman who's pregnant because she no, just... No, no. Remember go that right old joke about the pill, you just keep it between your knees? That... <laughs> <laughs> so it just came from there's, the there's good advice in here about how you organise yourself to go out and get drunk at about th- three months I know, after I your baby. I lived it down. I was a bit mad when I wrote that book, really. <laughs> yes. It's called How to Get Trolley When You're Breastfeeding. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd had it, honestly. Yeah. Um, so if you. Carefully is the Go answer. and buy a copy for somebody, but. Read it anyway, because even if it's a million years since you had babies, or if you, you know, it's all going, it's going to make you laugh. It's, 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 Good. you're going to just love it. It's a bit bonkers. <laughs> if I say oh, you to look myself. a bit nervous about what I'm looking at in here. I am. There's a, there's a lovely thing in here that I wanted to bring up with you. Um, I haven't got, read it in 16 years, you know. Good. You said, I develop a theory that all writers have major mothers. Serious mothers, sometimes demanding mothers, the kind of women you always know when they're in the room. I test this theory any time I'm at a reading or a conference. Do you still think that? that I, this is so immensely private. You could, you could say an Irish writer, not only do I know them, but I've often met their mother. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I love having a good go with the mummy and seeing, you know, yeah. So that still that theory is still still yes, one you stick I, to. I said it, you know, at these kind of festivals and conferences. I, I said it to a, an Irish writer, and he he said nothing to me. He just started to weep. <laughs> <laughs> They're there, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, not to- not copiously, but it just like that, you know. Um, John McGarren's mother died when he was eight, um, uh, and he wrote about that. I mean, and, and his work, as well as being part of this tradition that I found so difficult to deal, difficult to absorb or to, to, to use, um, his work was very centered on a, a 
highly unpleasant, difficult father. Um, and that seemed to be that the mother was absent in Irish fiction for a very long time. But you could say that you might say that about American, about Hollywood, for example, with father sons. And, you know, fathers are, are a big subject in, in modern fiction. It wasn't the case in the 19th century where people wrote about family life quite easily. Um, you know, people like Tolstoy, there, mm. you know, there, there was a range, but a lot of the kind of, it became very father-centered in some way. Now, that's a grand theory that I would have difficulty supporting, yes, chapter yes. and verse, so that's... Uh, I won't tie you down to it. Don't but I tie me down, but I, I, do, I do know that it's in some way true of the Irish tradition that I'm talking of. So... So Leading I put the mothers into, back in. I yeah. do put the mothers back in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there are similarities from book to book, but the mothers do change also. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yes, because I was going to say, in both The Gathering and The Green Road, there are... One mother is one that you take care around. You don't tell her things or you're told not to tell her things. The other mother takes to her bed as her way of dealing with things that don't please her or she doesn't want to hear. Yes. Now, the phrase take to the bed isn't in the green road. It's quite interesting, Maren. <laughs> it's taking to the bed. Rosalind in the green road, taking to the bed, when I think about it, was something that poorer women did. Uh -huh. It took to the bed and they never got out again. Uh, Ro Rosalind takes the horizontal solution. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what our children call the horizontal solution. So... I wonder is take to the bed in there because when I was growing up there was a no, woman. No, probably isn't. No, it, it might maybe be I've I heard that. It just yeah. a bit, uh, there was a woman who took to the bed at fifty-five and never got out. Mm. Brendan Behan had a short story in which a granny has taken to the bed, <laughs> and, and that means you, you don't you don't get up. You ever get up? No, yeah. but Rosaline, she just, the horizontal she solution. Just, she, she would spend a week or two. But in the gathering, the mother there. And I, I searched this morning to try and find her name. What is her name in the gathering? The, the mother. It exists. <laughs> it exists. I'm, I'm sure she's got a name. I just didn't note it. That is a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good question. I don't want to waste all valuable time while you search for her name, but... You know, I have a, I'm very cautious about naming people and it often happens at a very distinct point in the book. In, in, yeah. in one book, The Forgotten Waltz, we don't know the name of the narrator until a child says her name and, that, and, and she's mm. christened just there in the middle of the book. So, ah. Uh... <laughs> but I met a woman in the supermarket literally two weeks ago and she said, I always wondered you used my name. In, in in your book. People pay money for I say that, she was they? called Maura, and I, I, mm. I had Maura Daly, and, and uh, uh, she was called Maura, say, and I called it the character Maureen. Uh, she said, because I am actually Maureen. <laughs> <laughs> like, I knew that, and, and she said, and then I thought, well, she got her prize. <laughs> <laughs> but these mothers, yeah. you know, the mother in the gathering, 
people tiptoe around her. She does. And you say that yeah. in that sort of second chapter about how you think the narrator thinks she could walk past her. If she wore a different coat or something, she could walk past her in the street and not pick up that she's her mother. She's she the mother here is kind of absence manifest, and a lot mm -hmm. of some of the you know there's the, the narrator's quite angry, but some of the rage is quite, is quite infantile that the mother somehow mm. is hard to catch, hard to describe, seriously hard to name. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, w it would have been very deliberate. It was 2003 when I wrote this. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I'm glad you're having difficulty finding it. No, I really makes think me feel she better. wasn't named. Um, so, uh, the, so that difficulty, that haziness, she says she, she, when she leaves her mother, she finds she's run through her like water. Mm. Um, but the mother doesn't know how to recognize herself either, that she's, she's, she's vagued out. And she, she is a very vague person that she's had an unspecified number of pregnancies so she's had 12 children and several mm. miscarriages mm. and I did know I did I did know amazing Irish mammies when I was growing up who had many children and would have 49 shirts out on the line on Monday at 8 a.m and all of that kind of thing were terrific um, but I didn't write a terrific I also knew women who had been through m multiple multiple pregnancies and I thought, it, well, if it had happened to me, it would just knock the stuffing out of me. And there was one, and when she opened the door, she'd look at you like, maybe you were one of hers. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, that, and that then happens in the, mm. in the mm. gathering where the mother opens the door and doesn't know Veronica's name. Yes, name. that's right, and she has to tell and her. And she wants to say, you, you called me Veronica. Yeah, yeah. How can you, it's your fault that that's my name. <laughs> and is that, I mean, you know, this is modern day now where abuse, sexual abuse, um, abuse of children is talked about a great deal. But when you have a mother who is so, as you say, battered by multiple pregnancies, she's not picking up stuff, she was never in a state where she could have picked up anything that was going on to Liam or the children. No, there's no sense of specific blame either yeah. touched no, no. by the narrator to her or no. or strangely to the grandmother, to the Ada, grandmother. who no. might have picked it up. Yeah. Yeah. So her vagueness, her... Well, Ada was sharp yeah. as a tack, but, uh, but there, there's, there's no sense of, of, of that, no. No, not mm. at all. I think it'd be nice to hear a reading right now. Okay, I'll give you a different mother, um, which is Rosaline, who's endlessly named and renamed because the, the problematics of Rosaline are, um, that's all you can do is just say, oh, Rosaline. Um, also, she doesn't like her children calling her Mama. Or Mammy, Mammy is too in, in, it's too uh, lower class for her. So they all call her different things. Anyway, this uh, is the first section, and it's uh, narrated from the point of view of Hannah, who's 12 years old. And her elder brother, Dan, has um, decided he's going to become a priest. This is in 1981, when there were like three priests, in, <laughs> three seminarians in Ireland, uh, 1980. 
there were actually three vocations in the Diocese of Dublin in that year. So it was already a kind of odd enough choice for him to make. They live in the west of Ireland, not in Dublin. Anyway, he made the big announcement at Sunday dinner, which the Madigans always did with a tablecloth and proper napkins, no matter what. On that Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, they had bacon and cabbage with white sauce and carrots, green, white and orange, like the Irish flag. There was a little glass of parsley sitting on the tablecloth and the shadow of the water trembled in the sunshine. Their father folded his large hands and said grace, after which there was silence. Apart from the general sound of chewing, that is, and their father clearing his throat as he tended to do every minute or so. <coughs> the parents sat at either end of the table, the children along the sides, girls facing the window, boys facing the room, Constance and Hannah, Emmett and Dan. There was a fire in the grate, and the sun also shone now and then, so they were as warm as winter and warm as summer for five minutes at a time. They were twice as warm. Dan said, I have been speaking again with Father Fall. It was April, a dappled kind of day. The clean light caught the drops on the windowpane in all their multiplicity, while outside a thousand baby leaves unfurled against branches black with rain. Inside, their mother had a tissue trapped in the palm of her hand. She lifted it against her forehead. Oh no, she said turning away, and her mouth sagged open so you could see the carrots. <laughs> he says, I must ask you to think again, that it is hard for a man who does not have his family behind him. It's a big decision I'm making. And he says, I must ask you, I must plead with you not to spoil it with your own feelings and concerns. Dan spoke as though they were in private or he spoke as though they were in a great hall. But it was a family meal, which was not the same as either of these things. You could see their mother had an impulse to rise from the table, but could not allow herself to flee. He says, I'm to ask your forgiveness for the life you had hoped for me and the grandchildren you will not have. Emmett snorted into his dinner. Dan pressed his hands down on the tabletop before swiping at his little brother fast and hard. Their mother blanked for the blow like a horse jumping a ditch. But Emmett ducked. And after a long second, she landed on the other side. Then she put her head down as though to gather speed. A moan came out of her small and unformed. The sound of it seemed to please as well as surprise her. So she tried again. This next moan started soft and went long and there was a kind of speaking to its last rise and fall. Oh, God, she said. She threw her head back and blinked at the ceiling once, twice. Oh, dear God. The tears started to come, one on top of the last, down to her hairline. One, two, three, four. She stayed like that for a moment while the children watched and pretended not to be watching. And her children and her husband cleared his throat in the silence. <clears throat> Their mother lifted her hands and shook them free of her sleeves. She wiped her wet temples with the heels of her hands and used 
her delicate, crooked fingers to fix the back of her hair, which she always wore in a chignon. Then she sat up again and looked very carefully at nothing. She picked up a fork and stuck it into a piece of bacon and she brought it to her mouth, but the touch of the meat to her tongue undid her. The fork swung back down towards her plate and the bacon fell. Her lips made that wailing shape, touching in the middle and open at the sides. What Dan liked to call her wide mouth frog look. And then she took a sharp inhale and went, <gasps> It seemed to Hannah her mother might stop eating. Or if she was that hungry, she might take her plate and go into another room in order to cry. But this did not occur to her mother, clearly, and she sat there eating and crying at the same time. <laughs> Much crying, little eating. There was more work with the tissue, which was now in shreds. It was awful. The pain was awful. Their mother juddering and sputtering with the carrots falling from her mouth in little lumps and piles. Constance, who was the eldest, bossed them all quietly about and they carried plates and cups past their mother as she dripped one way or another into her own food. Oh, Mammy, said Constance, leaning in with her arm about her to slip the plate neatly away. Dan was the eldest boy, so it was his job to cut the apple tart, which he stood to do, dark against the window light, with the silver triangle of the cake slice in his hand. They can count me out, said their father, who had been playing in a tiny way with the handle of his teacup. He got up and left the room and Dan said, five, so. How am I going to do five? <laughs> there were six Madigans. Five was a whole new angle as he moved the cake slice through the ghost of a cross and then swung it 18 degrees to the side. It was a prizing open of the relations between them. It was a different story altogether, as though there might be any number of Madigans, and out in the wide world, any number of apple tarts. Their mother's crying turned to funny, staggered inhalations. <laughs> she dug into her dessert with a small spoon, and the children, too, were comforted by the pastry and by the woody sweetness of the old apples. Still, there was no ice cream on offer at that Sunday, and none of them asked for it, but they all knew there was some. It was jammed into the icebox at the top right-hand corner of the fridge. <laughs> Lovely, thank you. And... Now, I was going to ask you to, because I know um, in the audience there are probably a lot of writers, aspiring writers, and I know that the audience is jam-packed with dedicated readers who love to know about these things. I wondered if you would take us through the genesis of that story and how you of that. came, of how it evolved yeah. and how you chose the structure or how the structure of the story worked out. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is not a beginning, middle, and end uh, book. As in, I, the last, the one bef between The Gathering and The Green Road was The Forgotten Waltz, and I, I wrote it from page one to page 200, whatever, and went A, B, C, all the way through the alphabet until I finished the book. But usually, more usually, I work horizontally, as it were, 
It's one of my favourite words. <laughs> and uh, so I'd be writing this section and that section simultaneously, and then I'd be placing things beside each other to see how, how they, they, they sit and how the, how the juxtaposition put, throws up more interesting sort of hard-to-catch feelings that are hard to catch or hard to describe. So that the journey through the book does something that, that isn't just a psychological drama or is it, that it does something else that might be, I suppose, described as aesthetic, you know, that this satisfaction you get from the structure. So, um, and you get that feeling of simultaneous or horizontal or whatever it is, lateral writing in the way that each of the uh, children gets their own section in the first half. But so I started writing, I think, it's always a terrifying question, how do you start a book? Uh, I was in Paris and a woman said, I'm a psychoanalyst and I am working on, with my reading group, on the genetic sentence in Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> so what they wanted to do is find the first ever sentence that Joyce had written in his Good book. Luck. Which, good luck, yes. <laughs> but also, you know, you, you step quietly away from these people in a state of terror. Because if you, if you knew what the first sentence was, then you would never write your book. I mean, so you can only discover something like that in retrospect. And, and, and I look back and I see what was it or how does it, you know, there are many things in your head and they come together. I was writing Emmett in Africa. Emmett was, uh, became the priest in a way that Dan did not, but he's a secular priest. He's a kind of modern missionary. He's a humanitarian and he's working in Africa. He was writing, I was writing this in a little house beside the green road of the title in the west coast of Clare. So Emmett was writing home. The guy who owned the house, by the way, was a builder. It was a sweet house, it was very well built. But he was in Nigeria building factories because of there was no work in Ireland. And I was writing about Emmett being a humanitarian in Africa in this little house and the view of the sea in the west coast of Ireland. And it all felt right. But when Emmett was writing his postcards or thinking about home, he was thinking about stone walls and this view, and I, it just wouldn't go away. So it took me a long time to stop resisting that and make that the scenery of the book. Meanwhile, I was writing that scene at the dinner table, and I was writing it over and over and over for months and months. And one of the nicest things that a reader said to me was that if you read that first section again, it's all there. Emmett snorting at Dan. The mother, the whole thing of the mother, the father's absenting himself and the different personalities and Constance taking the plate away and looking after her mother and doing the dishes, which is what she spends the rest of the book doing. <laughs> Never start. <laughs> or start them early if you want your dishes done for you in old age. <laughs> start them early. Um, and Hannah's gaze then, which seems kind of sweet, but is too... You know, this view of her mother, this counting the tears, it's too stunned, you know. And I, and it was quite a strong decision later in the book to show Hannah at, a, at, at really at the, the, the nub end of the, 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 uh, at a hard place in her life where things are not coming together for her and, 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 and that difficulty surfacing later on in life. Anyway, so I wrote that, uh, so I was writing Emmett for ages, a year. <laughs> Then I don't know what happened. Yes, then, I mean, I wrote all mm. the, some of the other sections and, and, and I wrote Constance last 
of, of the children. And that was quite a challenge because it had to tell the story of what had happened to each of them. She had yes. a, lot, a lot of the burden of the information, technically. And then in the middle of the book, the climax is Rosaline. The climax is always dead in the middle of a book, whatever happens. So instead of doing a big climactic scene with Rosaline, I undercut it completely, and I just had her rather vaguely writing her Christmas cards. So it's an anticlimactic section of the book. But again, all her views on all the children are there, readying us up for the second half, which is essentially a, a play. And the play is King Lear. Yeah, um, out on the moors. Out on the yeah. moors and all yeah. the rest of it. So, uh, uh, and it's dialogue driven. But I spent the first half of the book stalking Rosaline. I couldn't get her, neither could her children get her. I was fine with that. But then I had to write her. And that only really started taking off when I made her speak. Yes. So a character speaks. And there's something incontrovertible. You're not describing the character. The character owns those words. So there she was going, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're, you're, the choice for a writer when, when to let the dialogue tell the story mm. must be a really interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, a, a moment of dialogue is, is a moment of complete transparency in the, in the text. There they are. The only thing... To be asked is why you chose those words over other words. Mm. So it moves them very powerfully forward. And um, I, some people find dialogue hard to write, and there's all talk about clunky dialogue and all the rest of it. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoyed writing the dialogue. Um, and 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 the thing is. In a play, the actors can spend the weeks of rehearsal doing the subtext. Um, but in a book like this, the subtext should be there already because we know so much about the characters once they start speaking. So the, <laughs> the really misogynistic bad joke. This is a terrible joke. Uh, it's, uh, you know that, what a Freudian slip is? It's when you, you uh, want to say, uh, could you pass the salt? And instead you say, you bitch, you ruined my life. It's <laughs> 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 so one of my favorite jokes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and that's subtext. So by the time you've got your character saying, would you pass the salt? <laughs> You know what they that what they mean. Yeah. So the dialogue will be kind of a little bit sparkier, you know, or, yeah. or a bit more tense. Just before we um, break for questions, I'd love you just to read that. Oh, you want piece me to read again about the green road oh. itself? Do you want to do that with this? This like is a kind Yeah, I'll do. I'll do it any way you like. The, um, this is a kind of hoo-de-hoo passage. Um, I mean, you think you write differently from one page to the other, but um, most readers think it's all in the, the same kind of voice, one way or the other. Anyway, this is a more lyrical passage um, about the Green Road itself, and this is Hannah who has been brought out of, away from her mother by her father, who did a few things for them, such as that. The next day, which was Holy Thursday, 
He brought Hannah out in the orange cartina with the door that gave, gave a great crack when you opened it. A few miles out, he started to hum, and you could feel the sky getting whiter as they travelled towards the sea. Hannah loved the little house out at Boulevon. Four rooms, a porch full of geraniums, a mountain out the back and out the front, a sky full of weather. If you crossed the long meadow, you came to a boreen which brought you up over a small rise to a view of the Aran Islands out in Galway Bay and the cliffs of Moher, which were also famous far away to the south. This road turned into the green road that went across the burren high above the beach at Fenor, and this was the most beautiful road in the world, bar none, said her granny. Famed in song and story, the rocks gathering briefly into walls before lapsing back into field, the little stony pastures whose flowers were sweet and rare. And if you lifted your eyes from the difficulties of the path, it was always different again. The islands sleeping out in the bay, the clouds running their shadows across the water, the Atlantic surging up the distant cliffs in a tranced, silent plume of spray. Far below were the limestone flats they called the flaggy shore, grey rocks under a grey sky. And there were days when the sea was a glittering grey and your eyes could not tell if it was dusk or dawn. Your eyes were always adjusting. It was like the rocks took the light and hid it away. And that was the thing about Boulevon. It was a place that made itself hard to see. And Hannah loved her granny Madigan, a woman who looked like she'd a lot to say and wasn't saying any of it. Thank you, Anne. Now I'm, it's time to open up for questions. So the lights are going to come up so that Anne and I can see you. There are two roving mics. And um, if you just wait until the mic reaches you, and I'm in charge of pointing. So I want to see some hands up, please. <laughs> to point to, there's one there. Yes, thank you. Hi. Uh, I've just read The Fall of the House of Wilde. Oscar Wilde was built up by Jane Wilde, his mother. What would the fall of the House of Enright look like? The, the fall of the House of Wilde? Yes. Which book is that? Wilde. Oscar? Yes, Oscar. The fall of the House of Enright? Yes. Or crumbling at the edges, you know. Uh, the Fall of the House of Usher is a wonderfully incestuous story about um, uh, by Edgar Allan Poe and would have informed something like The Gathering quite a lot, which has a kind of subtext of incest underneath it. That isn't um, the Enright's current problem. <laughs> um, I think, you know, when you're writing families, they're never... Although people say I write well about families, it's always kind of mythopoetic one way or the other, you know. And, and the gathering goes back to Antigone, which is uh, the understory there, uh, and, and the green road to King Lear. What would the fall of the Enrights look like? They're doing very well. 
We have another, we have another baby coming, my nephew. I said, having another baby. And <laughs> the, the Enright seems to be going from strength to strength. I hope you've given strength. them a copy of this book. Uh, yeah, no, they all get a hardback. <laughs> <laughs> the next generation hasn't put them off. No, over here. Rosaline gets very upset when Dan announces he's going to become a priest. I thought all Irish mothers aspired to their sons to become priests. Yes, well, Rosaline was the daughter of a chemist and, and therefore was quite somebody. Um, and uh, people who were somebody didn't want their sons to be priests necessarily. It was a great and amazing way to for, for, um, for poor people to gain status, um, to have a son a priest. But Rosaline isn't particularly religious, and it, so it, it's, it, 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 it doesn't really apply to her, you know. It didn't apply universally. Um, people weren't always glad that their children went into the religious life, not just for human or humanitarian reasons, but uh, for, for business reasons, for things to do with land. Um, uh, it, it wasn't universally. It, we, it wasn't a universally pious culture, although that seems to be um, how we portray ourselves or we're portrayed subsequently. No, and in 1981, there were only three priests. The, the year the Pope came to Ireland, we were all madly hysterically Catholic for two minutes. And it was like the property boom. It was like it got more hysterical the more untrue it was. It was like... <laughs> It was so hectic, I think, because the underlying, the fabric wasn't going to hold one way or the other, you know. No. Gosh. <laughs> Sorry. When you begin to plan a book, do you ever do it based on something you feel passionate about, some issue of the time? Yes, and then perhaps that's a mistake, you know. I mean, you don't want a book to be too abouty, you know. If it's about something, then the book is too abouty. And, it, and, and that becomes limiting in some way. Uh, you want it to lift out of polemic. But there, there can be an argument in your head, one way or the other. Um, the gathering, the surfacing of a kind of consciousness or awareness in the Ireland of the 1990s that that such a thing as child abuse could exist, first of all, and that it happened, secondly. Um, that that isn't how I describe the book to myself. I thought it was about the difference between imagination, memory, and history. I mean, I'd had, I'd, I had at that time a very high sense of myself. And so you pick something very fine and abstract and say, I'm writing about this, you know, and, and you pretend to read Heidegger, who might have an insight. <laughs> and in fact, then you, you just use the content of what's around you. Um, and, that, and that is actually what the book becomes about. But then people thought it was a book about family, and the family in the gathering was, for me, an entirely casual event. I mean, I knew families like this, and they just, I just used such a family. 
And people say, oh, you wrote family really well. That my, my entire family's in that book and there are only four of us was the best <laughs> comment I got on that. Um, so, I, that, so then I more consciously wrote about family as it were for the Green Road. But once you get to about it, you lose something. Be writing about family, and I studied a little bit about uh, how families label each other um, and how particularly with a certain style of mother, how, 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 how they label their children one way or the other. Um, I'm always interested in how we'd escape the roles that are assigned to us. I love writing in some way about freedom, but that means like not writing about anything. It means writing about shaking things off, you know, such as those labels. Um, but yeah, you know, you go around complaining in your head and then suddenly you're writing about it. <laughs> well, the gathering started as, as something quite different, didn't it? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it was going to be a historical epic spanning three generations that was going to be... Uh, a much loved, affectionate <laughs> <laughs> account. Somebody Naturalistic, here. really reader friendly. <laughs> then that really fell apart. I mean, it really fell apart and became, that was the false book, you know, and, and, the, and the real book, I put the falling apart into the narrator for various reasons. Um, so the fragmentation of my great idea, you have a great idea with, you know, you have the title and, and it's placed on the bestseller list before you have the book, you know. Um, and that, that book fell away. And, and, and then the, the, the resulting book had a more interesting journey in the world than I had envisaged, but yeah. Mm. yeah. I was wondering about the um, new writing you alluded to that's coming out in Ireland and the, the sort of themes that might be coming out in that writing or some of the writers that you think are really exciting. Can you talk about those? Yeah, um, there are, uh, uh, there's a new wave of younger writers now. Um, in Ireland, writers are certainly, they're younger than German writers who are all over 60. You're not really called a writer until you've become venerable. But um, we've always had a younger tradition. Um, so, uh, Emer McBride, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, Sarah Baum, Spill, Shimmer, Falter, Wither, Lisa McInerney, The Glorious Heresies. These are three recent uh, books by women. Then Mary Costello. Um, there's just, there's a great bunch. Um, Colin Barrett, Kevin Barry, who's, who's, who's not, who's no spring chicken. Um, so he's, he's not a, a baby writer anymore. And, and, you know, neither are all of these, but they're on their first or second books. And, uh, um, uh, and, and these are all terrific voices. These about Irish writers of a generation slightly older than mine is that they're all incredibly different. You kind of think of Irish writing as something, but if you pick up the book, you get a very recognizable, distinctive voice that is not the same as any of the other voices. And it takes a little while before that, that individuality kind of comes through. Um, but all of these writers have very beautifully defined different voices, which are all more or less can be identified as Irish. Up there, yes. 
seeing Rachel Rand. <laughs> Hi. Um, one book we haven't talked about was The Forgotten Waltz, which I loved. Um, is that a bounty? Or um, did something in particular inspire that one? Uh, it was a bit about it in uh, the sense that uh, it was about the, the boom and bust. The Gathering was written from a, the time point of The Gathering was 2002. Towards the end of which her husband, Veronica's husband, is trying to make her buy property as if that's going to fix everything. And she says, yeah, I'm going to fix, I'm going to buy the house for my grandmother where it all happened and I'm going to just refurbish and sell. And that would be great. And there was that feeling during the boom that, you know, history could be undone or just put in some wide oak planking. <laughs> yeah, I find a great bit of solace in that myself, but um, not as much as Veronica was thinking of. Um, so the Forgotten Waltz was... I started it in February... I went up for a funeral, an uncle's funeral that took place in the snow. It was a really amazing funeral scene on a hillside in the snow. And the country was in deep in snow and I had to drive my incredibly annoying family three hours up and three hours back while they complained about my driving in the snow. And, um, <laughs> and, all of, and then I, at the, just at the end of it all, I couldn't put another funeral in, and I could see my cousins looking at me like, don't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but there was something about the snow. The country had absolutely fallen apart economically, and, and, and it was difficult to drive and get around, and uh, sort of football commentators were crying on television about what had happened to the dream. And... Uh, uh, there was the snow was falling, and it, we had three years of snow, um, and and that was when I decided to write about that. I, 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 that's when I decided the, the snow was in the book, in the second half of the book, um, and I knew it would be about all of that. And instead of the denial of a boom, there was a kind of denial of an affair, which I thought an affair was a great. There were huge similarities between how the denial of this is great and it doesn't matter uh, and it's not real, but it's really fantastically exciting about an if that would go into having an affair um, uh, and the same to, to having an economy that was overheating. <laughs> it's not real, but wow, you know. It has to end, it has to end. We have to get out of this, but what the hell? <laughs> Is there one last question here? Over there. Thanks. Rachel. So much of uh, human behavior is um, driven by subconscious. The way we love and the way we are loved is um, often to do with things like repression, progression. How much as a writer do you have to know about psychology to be able to kind of explain things or understand behaviors? Well, there are a number of different... Um, I'm hugely interested in, in psychology, and I just... Um, I use my gossipy curiosity. I just excuse it by saying, oh, I'm a writer, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, I do love observing uh, people. And... Um, 
and it's part of the content rather than the shape of the book, but sometimes the shape, you know, I mean, the Green Road is somehow about abandonment, it's about leaving, or be, uh, Rosalind at the end says, what's the difference between your leaving your children and them leaving you? What's the difference? Um, so I would have read all my life in psychoanalysis, so-called, but um, also I do everything from pop psychology on the internet, you know. Um, I don't know if, yeah, so yes, it is, it, it's useful. It is, or it's, it's interesting to me, there are writers I know who refuse psychology. And to sort of withhold an explanation for why people are doing what they're doing, it's kind of, uh, you know, they just, they, it just happens. There's an arbitrary sense about, uh, and they like that, and that's somehow a statement about art or books or life. Um, and although I'm kind of wary of cause and effect, because I, I think you never, you say, here I am, how did I get here? What path brought me here? And you have all your reasons and you might have a story that brought you to whatever that defined point is. And actually, you might be wrong. It could have been, you know. So the novelist doesn't take that, a, a, that cause and effect very totally seriously. But I do, I am very interested in, you know, psychoanalysis. I read all of Freud when I was a baby writer, really, and, and then forgot it by the time I was you know, in my, my late 20s. But I like all of that. Thank you, yes. Is yes is the answer. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it this. So please, can I ask you to thank Anne for a most entertaining and educating time. Thank you. Now, Anne will be out, of course, in the, um, in the foyer, signing books at the UBS stall. And before you go, I want to thank you all for coming, because as I said before, we don't have an event if we don't have a loyal and interested and interesting audience. So thank you for coming. And I also want, because this is the last of our autumn series, to thank Rachel King and Marion Hargraves for the wonderful work that they've done in putting this season on. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Maureen, and thank you, Anne. And um, I'm just spontaneously decided to say a few words. Um, this is the final night in our autumn season, and what an incredible few nights it's been. Um, I want to thank all of the amazing writers that we had, including Anne, um, the fantastic chairs that we had, including Maureen. A big thank you to the Auckland Writers Festival for partnering with us to bring all these fabulous people to us. Um, huge thank you to um, our sponsors, um, especially to our patrons and supporters as well. Um, but most of all, we've been completely overwhelmed and honoured by the response that we've had to this season. Um, and so I want to thank you all so much for coming out and supporting us and for 
keeping, keeping these events alive in Christchurch in this beautiful building in the piano. Um, and I just want to let you know that our next season is going to be during the Christchurch Arts Festival in September. So look out for that. We've got eight fantastic events planned for our Shifting Points of View program in that. So look out for that. Um, so once again, um, big thank you to Anne Enright and thank you to you. And we hope to see you again soon. <laughs>